No Exit with Nicholas Corice contains explicit language and content. Listener discretion is advised. Where not a sliver of moonlight was out to guide the silent men through the dark and craggy mountainside, a man amongst them had bumped into Bertram Reed's side and looked down at what he was carrying, puzzled. Where did you get that? whispered the man to Bertram, pointing to the sword at his side. He thought best how to answer this. I've kept it hidden, was all he whispered back, and that was the most simple way he could put it. He didn't have the time or the wherewithal right now to explain that this was his great-grandfather's sword. This sword that had slain barbaric hordes when they had come to pillage the countryside over three generations ago. This sword that had also served his father during the war to follow. But most importantly, tonight this sword would aid in the battle against the evil black dragon from the smoggy Midlands, who had settled here and made his life and the life of everyone else a living nightmare of blood and sacrifice for over the past decade. And tonight, the men who had spoken only whispers crept through the dark and would make that dragon finally pay for the evil that had wrought upon the land from coast to coast and from hill to dale. The man reached down to touch the sword and Bertrand slapped it, then shooed him away. None of the other men had anything close to a proper weapon with them. Bertram had seen a dull kitchen knife here and there, but mostly the men held crude clubs or sharp sticks. The dragon had forced the people across the land to destroy any weaponry or any weaponry that might be used against it, and had even gone so far as to force others to murder anyone they had even suspected of possessing any real weaponry. A shush came from the old man who led the group up front. This had meant they were near. Bertram could feel the nervousness and fear that held itself in the men's breath. The old man pointed down into the crater below, and inside was a poison pit of skulls and bones. Mostly human, but there were also animals and various beasts scattered about as well. This is where the dragon itself lay, and the men were hoping to get the jump on it, to do their best to surprise it. They scuffled their feet and gathered around the edge of the crater to see what they could make out in the dark, and as their eyes adjusted, something felt amiss. Though it was dark, they could see nothing sitting on top of that pile of bones. The men were confused, but then the flapping of the wings overhead had put an end to their questions and the dragon circled overhead. The great monster belched out an amethyst fire from its craw into the air and then landed on a large rock before them. It scratched at its horns with a claw from its wing and then grinned. Somehow, it knew they were coming. The men eyed each other suspiciously. Someone had perhaps told the dragon what was going to happen tonight. It chuckled between its yellowing teeth. <laughs> How did I find out, you ask yourselves, it said. It's not a matter of how. I simply know, and I could have stopped it at any time, but I didn't. I allowed it to go on as far as it did. I've taken your people and your safety and your sense of security. But there was one thing I wanted to take away most of all. A man brandishing an old kitchen table leg shouted, And what was that? Your hope, was all the dragon said, grinning. A grim mood fell over the men, and the dragon continued. <sighs> but fear not, my friends. We are already here. Before I slaughter you and pick the meat from your bones and the bones of your families, I'll let you have just this. If you are preparing for a fight, then I shall give you the grace of one. 
A scream cut the air from the crowd of men as one of them rushed the dragon with two sharpened halves of a broom. The dragon slashed at him with his foremost claw, killing him instantly. This single act had sent the men into a frenzy, and now with nothing left to lose, they knew that this was their one and only chance. The screams filled the air as they sacrificed their lives to fight off the accursed monster. The men surrounded it on all sides and took their best shot with their crude weaponry. Though the dragon itself shrugged off most of the blows, the sheer numbers of the attacks altogether harmed it little by little. At a certain point when the dragon began to tire of the relentless beatings, it tried to take into the air to get flight. But when it realized this was impossible due to the sheer amount of blows it was taking, it resorted to the one and only trick it had in its arsenal. At once, it heaved a great massive stench of foggy, poisonous, amethyst-colored breath to the men, and the flesh fell from their bones when they came in contact with it. The men scattered as best they could. With all the fighting concentrated the way it was, Bertram hadn't even had the chance to get close enough to get a hit in, and now the men were retreating. Bertram knew he had to do something, and quickly. He steadily approached the dragon from the side, crouching low and staying out of its vision. The dragon would watch the amethyst vapor belch from its mouth, and then would stop to catch its breath. And in between breaths, it would move back with its hind legs and claw the men with its front claws. He steadied his feet and moved closer, and when he decided to let Luck take his path forward, he felt the opportune moment, and then, with both hands on the handle, the blade traversed itself straight through the dragon's neck. Its head careened around limply. Bright amethyst ooze issued from the cut on its neckline and bubbled up in an acidic foam. It tried again and again to breathe its toxic breath once more, but it found itself dry heaving at every attempt. The men began to move in again, some now with plain, ordinary rocks in both hands, and beat by beat, hit by hit, until the dragon fell to the ground itself and succumbed to the men's pummeling. Bertram himself had secured a space of safety while the thing thrashed about. Then once he saw another opportunity, he rushed in with his blade and stabbed the creature in the skull, sticking the blade from its forehead and eyes as the dragon's life faded from existence. He didn't stop until other men had grabbed his arms and pulled him away. It's done, said one of the men as he held Bertram. Stop this madness! Bertram caught his breath and wiped the saliva dripping from his mouth. It is... it is done he said, huffing. A wicked smile grew on his face as he watched the dark blood drip from the still monster. The spark of whatever damnable life the dragon had left in its slitted eyes and Bertram could feel the monster's defeat in his very chest. He raised the blade above him high into the night air and shouted, It is done! The shouting of the men's cheers echoed in the dark could be heard from mountainside to mountainside. It had been many days since the fight, and Bertram found himself milling about town. Since the day the dragon had been killed, the bodies of the slain men met at the battle had been identified and laid to rest in a mass grave near the town proper. But despite all that, things had started to lighten up just a bit everywhere. Just about everyone in town who had passed Bertram had thanked him in some small way. They say you're the one that did it, an old man said as he passed by, steadying himself on a rickety old cane. Bertram had heard this a lot. 
He would only give a modest smile and shake his head. No, not really. Everyone did it. It was just me who took a lucky shot is all. Was all he would say every time. The old man propped himself up and took Bertram's hand, gave it a gentle shake, and said, Well, as fitting as it is, thanks for taking it. Bertram could only shake his head and smile every time. He also openly carried his sword with him everywhere he went, and people had asked to see it. By the gods, it must be enchanted, they would gush. No, no, he would say modestly. It's just a blade, it is. Nothing special. Was my father's and my father's father's. If anything's special about it, that's it. And it went that way every time. In the evenings, he would make his way to the last standing tavern in town, and every time he walked in through the door, he was greeted with a cheer. There he is, and that's our boy right there, the men would shout, with the occasional quip of, I'll bet this man never pays for a drink anymore, which was true, but Bertram didn't exactly want to flaunt that, especially after they had built him his own chair in the corner of the room which they called the throne, which Bertram put quite the fuss about when it was first presented to him. Oh no, he said, surely you can't be serious. This is all simply too much, really now, and it went on in that manner, but now he comes in and sits there every time he comes in. Fancy a pint, Bertie, said the smiling gap-toothed barmaiden, whom he had bedded several times already. If it's not too much trouble. She poured one up and then went to set the mug in front of him with a wink. Near the bar, a group of older gentlemen looked at each other and then turned towards him. Uh, good thing you're here, Bert. We was just talking about something important. Oh, said Bertram, taking a sip from the freshly poured beer. She had given him the tavern's private stock again. Fine stuff kept for the noblemen and women, even after he had specifically asked her not to do that. He smacked his lips, went, ah, then said, what about then? Well, it's like this, Bert. We hasn't had us a proper mayor in the town since the old fuck-faced lizard done gobbled him about a tenth century ago, and we's all been thinking about how's we's gonna need a new one again. Hmm, I see, Bertram said, crossing his legs and leaning back. Yep. And, uh, we've been thinking real hard, and... Bullshit! Said a man from somewhere in the tavern. A quiet hush fell over the whole room. Bertram let it hang in the air, and then said, Excuse me? I said bullshit! Said the voice again, and the crowd looked towards a bearded man with a large wound running through his face, sitting by himself. The wound was held together with catgut, and looked as if it held his entire face together as he spoke. Fuck this man, he continued, taking a long drink of beer and then spitting on the floor. I was there. Why don't I get a fucking parade every day? Or anyone else who was there? Or for the fathers and the sons and the husbands rotting in that pit at the edge of town? Why don't we put a crown on one of those chopped up bodies and make him king for a fucking day? The mood became more tense and the bitter man continued. I see you fawning over this stupid git all day and all night. Pathetic. I was there too. And I get my respect, but I don't get a fucking wake job from the law of you everywhere I piss around. How many people had to die before he decided to take that old hidden sword of his and rise against that damn horrid thing? How many times did our hero over there sit with that weapon firmly planted up his arse while women and children die in its blood-soaked wake? And to think of how many of us would have died if that monster would have found out he had it. The crowd looked to Bertram for a reaction, but he sat where he was at, anger growing inside him. He gripped the handle of his sword. 
Fact is, continued the man, I don't think he could have done shite without it, if you ask me. Bertrand rose up from his seat, unsheathed the sword, and dropped it onto the floor with a clank, much to the shock of everyone. If you really feel that way, Bertram said, give me a chance to prove it. Outside, the men wasted no time tussling with each other in the center of a silent crowd who was unsure of who to cheer for, or even if they should be cheering at all. It began with fists, then hit by hit descended into a grappling match, with both men slipping in and out of each other's holds. It was a good fight for what it was worth, but not until the scarred man went for Bertram's genitals, in which Bertram decided to open the gates for some dirty fighting. And it worked like this. Bertram had allowed the man to get him into a headlock. And when he became overconfident, Bertram reached up at the man's face stitches and grabbed at it, pulling the stitches out with a snap one by one. The man screamed in agony, and Bertram slipped free. He tackled the man to the mud. He pummeled the man in his face for a moment, and when he saw the bleeding man was at the last bit of his energy, he shoved his thumbs into the man's eye sockets, slowly and painfully killing him in the mud and filth. Bertram stood up wearily and wiped the sweat and the blood off of his brow. He then looked down and saw a large chunk of the man's flesh still tangled up in his hand from the catgut. He grabbed at it, then held it up above him, as he had done with his sword in the mountains. Does anyone else want to try me? He shouted. The crowd, horrified at what they had just seen, remained silent. Then, slowly, some began to cheer at Bertram, while others walked away in disgust. Months later, when Bertram entered the tavern, a quiet shush blanketed the room. His black armor boots hit the floor step by step, and each man and woman that he had passed bowed their head in regard to him. He went to his chair in the corner of the room, and the barmaid nervously placed his pint on the table. Before he sat down, he made sure to place the collected braid of men's scalps he carried with him at all times on the table in front of him. These were the scalps of his enemies those who would dare to rise against him in any sort of defiance or him or his word. The woman stepped away with a bow, and when he had fully seated himself in the chair, the chatter in the tavern resumed, but was now subdued. An older man in a black robe came in through the door just behind him, as per his usual instruction. Bertram always came in first, then the man after. His name was Farnfeld, a former village councilman before the times of the dragon. He had now resumed his duty in helping to run the city, more or less. That is, of course, as long as it pleased the Lord Bertram sufficiently. Farnfeld approached, made a skittish bow, and said, My lord, I have news for you, if you wish to hear it this time. Bertram nodded, fingering the jeweled ring on his finger. He had slit the throat of a nobleman in a nearby town to get it, and now it had become his favorite accessory. My lord, I have just received word of an attempted uprising in Southside. A group of armed peasants attacked a quad of our guard in the early morning just before dawn. Any casualties? Bertram asked. One of ours, all four of theirs. No one was alive for interrogation. Bertram looked off to the side and mulled a plan around in his head. Take with you fifty of our men. Go to South Sed and round up all the males aged ten to a hundred. Kill every tenth one until someone says something. Naturally, those that come forward will be there to protect others. As such, I want you to take those who have come forward and torture them in the town square. Make it slow. Carry it over days if you must. 
We need to remind them that it's not just nobles and the barony that are under my thumb, but the citizenry as well. From hill to dale, all will know that they will get down into the thick of their skulls, that they are with Bertram of Lancastershire or with nothing. Not even life or mercy itself. You will see to this yourself personally, Farnfeld. I want ten different tongues cut from the jaws of ten different men to prove it. Farnfeld caught the breath in his chest from the nerves working in his system and responded with a shaky, Yes, my lord. Very good, said Bertram, taking a drink. And when you return, he added, we are to assemble the greatest tacticians, generals, and warriors we can get. Mark my words, Farnfeld. There are bigger things afoot. Much, much bigger. It was only but a few years later when Bertram, now better known as Bertram the Black, had amassed enough forces to storm the largest castle on the northern coast and take it for his own. He had taken the king's head off himself in the throne room with his own sword and placed it on a pike in a pen full of swine in front of the castle for all to see. Then later, he had walked up to the huge spiral staircase in front of the castle itself and cast the crown down the stairs, where it rolled with a clink into the dirty ground below, declaring that a true king ruled not with a piece of jewelry on his head, but with his very own fist. And with Bertram's own fist himself, he had declared himself the king of this region. There were aforemented plans after that, of course. The storm of the southernmost villages and kingdoms, one by one, blade by blade, head by head, and it would all come to fruition soon enough. While the castle of the northern coast was perhaps the biggest prize of his collection of kingdoms, Bertram had felt the castle itself was unsuitable for his rule. A new one would be built, bigger and better, more imposing, and Bertram knew exactly where to place the center of his signal to power. While he felt the actual crown unsatisfactory, he did, however, take a liking to the throne itself. He ordered it to be packed up and moved along with himself and a caravan of soldiers and workers. He led the charge, and to where they were going he would not say until they had arrived at their destination, in the smoggy mountaintops. Bertram climbed down from his war steed and surveyed the landscape when he came to the edge of the high crater. Hold, he shouted, and the word went down the line. Bertram adjusted his belt. His collection of scalps had grown greater by now, and had often given him trouble with his clothing. He sniffed the air around him, then climbed over the rocks to look at the crater below him, and a grin spread across his face. Put it right there, he said, pointing to the old pile of bones in the center and inferring to the king's throne. The workers cowered at his request and scattered to obey. Soon, a team of peasants worked the throne off the caravan and set up a series of ramps and pulleys to do as he ordered. With Farnfeld having been long dead by Bertram's own hand long ago, Bertram now had a team of scribes and do men at his bidding and planning. He pointed out into the crater and spoke. It's got to be 4,000, 5,000 divots high, tall enough to pierce the sky itself, he said, waving a hand upward. The outer walls will be made of black rock from the surrounding mountain, and will train masons right here on site to hew it into bricks. Save only the blackest rocks and obsidian for the inner structure. Though my chambers will be on top, my throne will remain right here on top of this bone pile. No wall, no barricade will surround it, and indeed the entire structure itself will be built around it. Find the best architects and engineers in the land. Make it happen. The scribes bowed and nodded. Bertram sneered at them. 
He had hoped that they were listening to him and not just responding. He hated it when people would react without honesty and only said things to appease him. In fact, if others had realized this, perhaps less of them would be dead. Bertram snorted and surveyed the land. The caravan scattered and began to set up the base of operations. He had not been here in years, not since the fateful day of the dragon slaying. He picked up a handful of black dirt in his hand and scattered it into the wind. He knew somehow, at some point, much of that dust and dirt could have been a man's or several men's flesh, now dried and granulated. Bertram dusted off his hands and made his way down to the crater, and his scribes had followed suit. He began to wax poetic, as he was prone to do more often now. I have told the lot of you. I have not been here in years, he said, adjusting his belt once more as he walked. Not since the Black Dragon died. I have made a pass by the area from time to time on the way to somewhere else, but I haven't been back to this spot since then. He skidded down a steep, dusty hill and got to his feet, kicking dirt everywhere. Scribes went tumbling around him, paper and quills flying, though a few managed to land on their feet. That's why he always kept multiples around him, he thought to himself, and continued. It was true. I wasn't the bravest man that day. Nor was I the smartest or the fastest. The most fortunate, perhaps. But I remember what had led me up to that day. Perhaps, if I stopped to think about it, my earliest memory was watching my own grandmother get smothered in the haze of the great dragon's breath outside of our home. I remember my grandfather's life ending in the same manner outside of his forge. That is when we had one. And I remember that itself going up in flames as per order of the great beast itself as well. Then my father faltered. Then my new wed wife. And then our children succumbed to the same flame and claw. One by one, under the cruel talent of the dragon, I watched them and others to be led to the same fate. Bertram slapped the dust off of his armor as he made his way to the pile of bones. Now, I've read the tales and heard the legends about how the matrons of the earth created the dragons to defend the land from man. I've heard the religious texts about how the dragons were a force outside of his creation that continued to defy his wisdom. It's all poppycock, of course. There's still much we don't know about them. Can't rightly ask when they come and go as they please and take what they want when they want it. I still hear rumors of various dragon sightings across the coast. We still haven't a clue about them. I know there's bits and bobs we can only assume to be true about how they are both covetous and set in their own ways, shall we say. And how rare they are and how only one shows up every thousand years for whatever ridiculous reason. Bertram picked up a skull from the large pile of bones, blew the dust off and looked at it and let it fall from his hand back onto the pile. There were many a man that died that day. I can remember it as if it were only yesterday. Some of them went on to become my fiercest, most loyal fighters. Others, of course, died by my own hand when they went up against me, and the rest hmm, scattered off into the five winds. More likely died of wounds or post-war madness as it befalls men. The workers had placed the chair in a fitting spot on the bone pile and had quickly built wooden struts underneath to support it. They scattered when they saw Bertram. He eyeballed it and kicked it once to check its stability. It was a bit crooked but sturdy enough. He sat down upon it, rubbed his knees and took a deep sigh through his nose, then at once became quiet and reflective. The scribes that had caught up to him surrounded him, readying their pens. You know, he began. I remember shortly after that whole affair. I trounced around the town, getting showered with the gratitude of others. Dragon Slayer! Hero, they called me! And I was by a 
naive, eager young runt basking in the glow of it all. But only for a moment. It wasn't until an older gentleman in a tavern, drunk, I believe, he told me that it wasn't me who slew the dragon, yet the combined effort of many. And he was right! But I know if I didn't do something right then and there, then we would have a different problem on our hands other than another damnable dragon. It would be getting in from the who and the what and all, and what belongs to this person, what shall be taken by these people. And then all of it would be squabbling amongst each other forever and all time. And that, I realized, is when it would happen. That's when another bloodthirsty dragon would come down from on high and take everything by storm. That's when the blood would be spilled once again in the name of the terrible sky demons. Bertram sighed and leaned back in the throne. I remember that gentleman. He was right. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. I was no different from the rest, save a rusty old sword, so I happened upon. But if I was the most of anything, if I had anything that set me above the rest... Bertram looked up into the sky from his throne on the top of Bones, and his eyes became distant, contemplating a future. In a few years due time, a great castle, the largest to be ever made in the land, would be built directly over his head, and it would stare out at the sky from this spot as he did now, watching, waiting for another winged beast to show itself somewhere on the horizon, waiting for another monster with the intent to take the world underneath its teeth as they all had. Bertram continued. If I had more of anything than anyone else did, it was fear. I was the most afraid. King Bertram looked up into the empty haze of clouds, and a distant stare painted his face. Inside of his head, ideas spurred for the future of his kingdom. been listening to Dragon Slayer's Lament, written and performed by myself, Nicholas Corice. Background ambience provided by TabletopAudio.com. Support them at TabletopAudio.com. End music provided by BenSound.com. Follow me on Instagram at NicholasNoExit. You have been listening to No Exit with Nicholas Corice. Fare thee well to the night.